We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the The kingdom kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. And this episode we're welcoming in Rabbi Joe Kalkowski. And I have to tell you that, that normally when I do a show, and I think that the audience generally knows this, I have an, I have an agenda, not, not like I, I have a mission, but I have, I have an idea as to what I'm going to talk about and what areas we're going to talk about and what I'm trying to explore. And I really don't hear, but his, his story was so interesting and unique to me um, that I had to hear a little bit more about it. And I wanted to hear a lot about it live and get to, and have sort of an organic conversation. Fear not, I have some notes. So what, what's so interesting about Rabbi Joe Kalikowski? Well, one, he's a Hasidic rabbi, which in and of itself is not you know, necessarily that interesting, maybe a little bit foreign to some people, a little bit foreign to me. Uh, but he's also a prison chaplain. And that's not really what I think about when I think of prison chaplains. Um, so I'm sure that that experience itself and things experienced in there and then how the prisoners react to him and how he interacts with them. Uh, all of that's going to be interesting. 
On top of that, let's not pigeonhole him just in, into uh, by the uh, by his faith and job. Uh, he's interested in history, mythology, UFOs, classic movies, especially monster movies. Um, he's been on the Mr. Lobo show, which is, um, uh, well, it's Cinema Insomnia with Mr. Lobo, I should get it right. Um, and uh, I think he's been on there twice as of this recording. Um, and... Well, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. He's also interested in you know, lore and legend and stuff like that. So I know that all sounds familiar to people who listen to this show because it's what I'm interested in as well. So without further ado, uh, welcome in, Rabbi. How are you tonight? Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. So, yeah, you, you really touched on a lot, of the, a lot of who I am, a lot of what I'm all about, what I'm interested in. I didn't. I didn't grow up in the Hasidic community. I did grow up uh, watching monster movies, did grow up, you know, reading books about Bigfoot and UFOs, and, and I never grew out of all that stuff. So that was, even even after, you know, fighting religion, most of my life I've been within this this faith path, but uh, I did not give up all of my interests in, you know, all these kind of esoteric and interesting things. And I think that's really kind of more along the lines of what, what you all like to talk about a lot, but, um, you know, it's, you, you touched on some interesting things. I think one, one point that you brought up was that, that you don't usually think of a Hasidic rabbi as a prison chaplain. So the truth of the matter is there are a lot of Hasidic rabbis who are prison chaplains, as far as prison chaplains and Jewish prison chaplains go. What's more unique about my position is that I supervise the whole team. I'm a full-time prison chaplain. It's rather common, relatively speaking, uh, maybe from, you know, to have a part-time uh, Jewish chaplain who might or might not be Hasidic. And, and a lot of them, I would say, you know, where I serve, you know, there's quite a lot who are, you know, Hasidic leaning or, or Hasidic, maybe different, different approach than my approach, but still nonetheless within that milieu. Um, but again, it's, it, it is rather unique, although not as much anymore, uh, for me to serve as the, not only, you know, a full-time chaplain, but a supervisory chaplain where I serve. And that has some interface with some of the things that, that you're mentioning, particularly because I supervise a team, you know, including myself, we have 10 chaplains. So there's, there's, you know, nine people that I supervise who are paid chaplains as well as some volunteer chaplains that I, that I also supervise. Um, and among the paid chaplains, two of them, I think, get into this area of lore uh, more than others. Uh, one would be a Native American chaplain, and the other is a Norse pagan chaplain. Oh, excellent. All right, well, th th this is great. We're going to have so much to talk about. But before we get into all of that, first, I want to hear a little bit about your origin story. And we spoke once before very briefly that we were having um, connection problems, but you indicated that you grew up in Long Island. Well, so did I. So let's play a little Jewish geography. Where did you grow up? Floral Park. Oh, okay. Uh, I went to Lindbergh High School. So... Um, okay. Yeah, so not exactly. We, we don't have to play. Do you know? But uh, so, but uh, there's North Shore and South Shore. It's the <laughs> that's right. It's, that's right. That's the real war of northern aggression. Exactly. Um, okay. So 
you said you didn't grow up Hasidic. So uh, what what put you on that path? Well, I my my grandparents were Orthodox, and around my bar mitzvah time, I was. Um, it was it's actually a funny story because I went to Hebrew school at a Reform Hebrew school when I was um, living on Long Island. When I was about and that was I was about eight nine years old when I started that, and then we moved to the Catskills when just before my tenth birthday. That's that's where I reside now. You know, so past thirty years. Um, I've been on and off in in Sullivan County, and uh, I and I started to go to an Orthodox Hebrew school, <clears throat> meaning it was not that the other children there were, were Orthodox; it was just that it was in an Orthodox synagogue, not not a Hasidic synagogue, but an Orthodox synagogue. And then I remember, you know, it came to Passover, and. We went to my grandparents for the Seder, the Bavi and Zaidi, and I thought my younger cousins were going to read the four questions in Hebrew. And my grandfather turned to me, he's like, you have the four questions. I didn't prepare it. I tried to read it, and I was struggling a little bit, and I was already then, I guess, 11 or 12, and my grandfather said, you know, you're not going to be able to read a whole Haftarah for, for your bar mitzvah. We're going to make your bar mitzvah very easy. Uh, I just had the, the blessings before and after the Torah reading on a Monday morning. And I was like, wow, this is pretty easy and it's kind of nice. I'm going to try a little bit more, a little bit more. My grandfather passed away uh, later that year, maybe about uh, nine months later. And then, so then again, I got more and more interested and found a, little, a few months after that, found the synagogue. Also, not technically a Hasidic synagogue, although with some Hasidic practices where I serve now as assistant rabbi, I started attending that synagogue again. That's about 25 years ago up here in the Catskills. And then uh, I was still going to public school, and then I moved in with my grandmother in Queens, right right near that same area. So it's right on the border of Queens and Nassau and New Hyde Park. And I, then I, I was I born in New Hyde Park. At Long Island Jewish? Yeah, it's not called that anymore, but yes. Yeah, that's where I was born also. So uh, so we're really... There you go. Really long. So uh, <laughs> that's... Um, so we... I started to go to a high school in, uh, in Forest Hills, Ezra Academy, and one of the teachers there was a Hasidic rabbi. And, then, and learning... We had a Jewish history class and learning, watching the... PBS documentary, uh, A Life Apart, it, it touched something. And then also um, a Hasidic Rebbe actually came to visit the high school, Kalavar Rebbe, and I became somewhat of a, a chosid of his, um, more or less. He, he officiated my wedding. And when I later was a rabbi in the synagogue in Virginia, he actually came to visit. Now he he's not well. He, he has uh, ALS. But he still he has a computer that reads his eye movements, and he writes his uh, Torah teachings almost every day using using this computer. I've, I've translated some of those those and published his uh, his writings that that uh, that I translated, and now he has another translator working for him also. But that's kind of you know 
where I guess my story, I did, I did go spend the, I would spend summers working in Bono Poly here in the Catskills. And then I went to Israel for a year and a half and then went to college and, in um, in Queens also. Uh, so then uh, I went to college and I, I met my wife while I was going to college. She was living in New Jersey and she actually was an opera singer who grew up Mormon and converted to Judaism. Also uh, got attracted to the Hasidic uh, side of things. So we we were an interesting interesting match and uh, that was kind of and, and you know interesting origin story I guess. Yeah, that that's not the the, the route to, or the couple that you often think of. But every nobody is one thing. All right, I have a really dumb question for you, and and I have to preface it by saying I'm not very religious. I never have been, and it was my ex father in law who corrected me when I said I grew up reformed. That he said reform. I said what? He said. You know, Jewish people don't call it reformed. It's reform. No ed. Right. So I mean, so this is into my adulthood. That the the, the, the uh, denomination that I was titularly raised in, um, that I didn't know the difference. And I bet my parents didn't and still don't know the difference. Um, anyway, so that's to tell, so that's to give a preface as to this following question, which hopefully won't sound so ignorant afterwards. But what does being Hasidic mean? What is a different, what's the main difference between that and Orthodox? Um, and, you know, I, listen, well, I grew up in New York, and I think that most people, when you think Hasidic Jews, you sort of think, you know, the Diamond District. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's normally in pop culture where you, where you see, you know, Hasidic Jews in the, in the Diamond Districts and, you know, heist movies or whatever, or background players. But what, what is being... I've, I've, I've been background players in a few, I've I, I played <laughs> a role in a few movies here and there over the years. Um, so it's... It's a generally it's a form of orthodoxy, although there are Hasidic traditions that exist within both reform and conservative movements as well. You know, there was a very prominent conservative rabbi was uh, Rabbi Heschel, who marched with Martin Luther King, was very famous, and he was part of a long Hasidic dynasty and and kept that aspect of spirituality, um, even though he. Meet Zach. His work-life balance is anything but balanced. But when he gets on the bike, he becomes Zen Zach. Zen Zach exists outside of time. His heartbeat sounds like a mellow drum circle. It's cool, right? The only notification he hears is the sound of the ocean. So if you want to reach him, talk to the ocean. Zen Zach is so zen because he has 24-7 expert claim service with GEICO, which is totally chill. GEICO Motorcycle. Expert coverage for both your sides. Oh, jeez, Dad, not the car again. Oh, happens all the time with old Betsy. Have you checked out Carvana yet? They have thousands of cars for under $20,000. But do those thousands of cars have personality like old Betsy? Betsy's held together by tape. And there are raccoons living in the engine. It's a family car. Uh, there are flames on the hood? Ah, custom paint job. No, Dad, the car's on fire. How many cars did you say Carvana had? Visit Carvana.com to shop thousands of cars for under $20,000. We'll drive you happy at Carvana. You know, went toward conservative Judaism instead of Orthodox Judaism. So it's not, it's not an exclusively Orthodox uh, path, and it's also not even an exclusively ultra Orthodox path. Because you know, I mentioned one of my teachers in high school was was Hasidic, but he leads kind of 
uh, um, you know, because within orthodoxy, you kind of have the two branches of ultra-orthodoxy and modern orthodoxy, or, you know, where I guess the modern orthodox would be more the plain clothes and the ultra-orthodox would be the black hats, whether it's Hasidic or not Hasidic, there, there's, there's those two worlds there. And that one teacher of mine, he has a rather large synagogue also on Long Island in Woodmere, where it would be more along culturally, would be more in the modern orthodox world or uh, maybe the right wing of the modern orthodox world. Uh, he dresses in the Hasidic garb, but he, you know, he speaks English and he, you know, he, he doesn't strictly speak Yiddish and he was college educated. And, you know, so there, there is some of that interlap. The, the Hasidic movement, generally how most people teach it, was founded in Ukraine, for the border of Ukraine and Poland. At that time, was probably considered Poland, that area. Mm-hmm. Um, Poland wasn't one country. It was, you know, many little uh, duchies and, uh, you know, different, different little uh, fiefdoms. But there was the Rabbi Israel... Ben Eliezer, who's known as the Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name. And he was known as a, a spiritual healer. Actually, the, one of the records that they have of him uh, from, you know, an actual, you know, written record, he's, he's called Dr. Baal Shem Tov. So that, that Dr. Baal Shem is how it's written in Polish uh, because of his, uh, you know, being known as, as a healer, uh, you know, teaching with different herbs and things like that was, was, you know, what the historical record has. But there's many legends that grew up around his story and uh, his disciples who came after, who really developed these kind of uh, what they call Hasidic courts, where, you know, you'll have a charismatic leader who kind of would, um, you know, lead and be a spiritual guide. And, and, and often they would have attribute some kind of mystical powers <clears throat> almost to the to these figures of you know whether clairvoyance or excuse me clairvoyance and other other uh, you know powers are often so they're kind of superheroes you know sometimes in German they would be called like Wunderrabbin or wonder rabbis is how they were often referred to now there was a lot of opposition you know nowadays we often look at the Hasidim as being the, you know, the ultra-Orthodox, the, you know, very strict type of, of Judaism. There is often, again, it's how it's painted historically, is that there was opposition to this movement because they were afraid it was too mystical, especially because about a century earlier there was a mystical movement following a charismatic leader who was kind of a false messiah figure who actually wound up converting to Islam and the whole controversy around around that that happened in the 1600s. And so probably the truth is the way I see it, and maybe this is a little different than how it's usually taught, is that a lot of what we consider today to be Hasidic is very similar to the way things were before that um, that uh, false messiah movement, Shabtai Tzvi, and when that and and that actually took over much of the Jewish community throughout the world. A lot of people, maybe at some point, the majority of people were convinced that this this uh, figure, this 
leader from Turkey was the Messiah. And when and when there was that disappointment when he converted to Islam, a lot of people threw away the baby with the bathwater. They said, you know, we have to we can't have all of this mystical fervor and, and emotion in Judaism. We just have to go by the letter of the law and, and just keep things very simple and and kind of rigid and cold. And so the Baal Shem Tov was kind of a revival movement to say, well, no, we, you know, we're going to be careful, especially this, these false messiah movements, a lot of them were antinomian, we'll still keep the law, but we should get that fervor back, that joy. There's a lot of emphasis on, um, on joy, on, you know, singing, dancing, meditation, practices like that, but also, um, appreciating the spirituality of everyday life, you know, as opposed to only relegating religion to the world of religious stuff as to say that really everything we do in life can be sanctified, eating, drinking, smoking, uh, you know, marital relations, all these things are, you know, we can invite God into that, into, you know, it's not like it's a separate, you know, we have the secular and the religious, even though, there is the idea of the separation between the secular and the holy, but of, you know, bringing even the secular things of the world into serving God, which again, it sounds kind of the opposite of what the stereotype is of this community of saying, you know, these are, you know, these very dour people. But the truth is when you get into these communities, you see there's a lot of singing, dancing, eating, drinking, everything it's a it's it's a fun type of religion in a certain sense you know there's a lot of uh humor and a lot of you know but and again you do have certain communities that are more strict than others um so my family on my mother's father's side my father wasn't jewish my mother is jewish and her father was from hungary well he was born here but his parents came from hungary and so i kind of latched on to the hungarian Hasidic tradition, which is, in a way, on one hand, they're a little bit more cloistered in some ways, but on the other hand, they're a little bit more open-minded in other ways, and they're less, I don't want to be negative, they're less cultish, meaning they'll still have, first of all, generally, their grand rabbi will also be like the chief rabbi, like he'll actually be a scholar, not only like a spiritual guru, but also you know, a traditional scholar. And there was less opposition in Hungary to the Hasidic movement um, as there was, particularly in Lithuania, there was tremendous opposition. And so things kind of became, you know, they expressed themselves differently. So you kind of have, there's the Lithuanian and the Russian flavor of Hasidic Judaism. There's a Polish flavor of Hasidic Judaism. There's a Hungarian flavor. They all express themselves differently uh, the Hungarians are, in a way, they they came to Hasidic traditions later than the other communities, uh, but they also, since they had less opposition, they're much more traditionalists, uh, in a way, much more ultra-Orthodox, but also, like I said, they're a little bit more open-minded in other ways, meaning it's not like everyone is going to be exactly the same, as opposed to, you know, groups coming from Russia, a lot of them, there's even though they might appear to be more modern, they they might dress in more modern day clothing and things like that. 
and and in ways be open to American and Western culture more, but they do they they're much more uniform in how they do things as opposed to the Hungarians. It's there's there is a certain uniform aspect, but it's a little bit more fluid and it's a little bit more. Um, I I I see I often say it's it's more holistic in the sense of it's embracing a lot of different approaches, you know, like we'll, you know, we'll, um, and, and, and not say, you know, there's much less, uh, banning of traditional books, meaning you, you might see groups from originating from Russia and because they had a fight with someone 150 and 200 years ago, they don't, they're not going to read this book and they're not going to read that book, books that are well accepted in the Jewish world. And, and as opposed to in the Hungarian world, they might disagree, but they'll still read the books. They'll still want to know what does it say and, and understand, well, why, why do we disagree with this one? They want to know, you know, so that's, uh, yeah. that appeals to me, you know. I, I want to know why you're wrong. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. If you were to paint things with a very broad brush, though, from a you know a higher you know ten thousand foot level, what what's the basic difference between traditional Orthodox Judaism and and the Hasidic? It, it, it's gotten to the point today where the Hasidic teachings have there's much less opposition to the Hasidic teachings as there was in the past, so it's almost lost the. Um, it's almost lost the, the major differences that most people would recognize. You know, there obvi- the obvious differences for most groups, with some exceptions, are the way they dress. You know, meaning the the long beards that are never trimmed, the the payas, you know, the the earlocks, the strimal, the fur hat, the and and other garb. Some even you know, which I on the Sabbath I wear knickers with you know, knee-high white socks, you know, kind of looks like you see pictures of George Washington, you know, something <laughs> like that. Right. You know, as opposed to the other, the other ultra-Orthodox, you know, will wear a fedora hat and a regular suit and tie. They might trim the beard if the single people might cut the beard all the way, not technically shaving, but, you know, use an electric razor, which technically is okay. And then you have the modern Orthodox, which for the most part, you know, dress like everybody else, just with the yarmulke on, you know, like, or, and sometimes maybe even not always with the yarmulke on, like when they're, except when they're praying, you see the one like, I don't want to get into politics or anything, but like, you know, like Jared Kushner would be a modern Orthodox Jew, and he doesn't always wear a yarmulke, but he's Orthodox, he prays three times a day, keeps kosher in the Sabbath and all those things. Um, you know, although one, one fellow who I ran into in my, in my, uh, Sojournings was uh, an actor, Stephen Hill, who was on Mission Impossible and on uh, Law and Order, and he was he was a Hasidic Jew. He didn't have a beard until he retired from acting. Then he grew his beard out. But when he was working as an actor actively, and again he didn't grow up like that, he adopted that later in life. But while he was working on on Law and Order, he was a, a very devoted Hasidic Jew to a particular Hasidic court, 
And he was also very strict. I remember people mentioning, oh, they were asking him for an autograph. And he said, no, you're not allowed to watch television. You know, you have to, like he was, and I only met him once because I was friends with his son uh, in, in Israel, who lives in Jerusalem, uh, again, who didn't grow up like this, but he adopted the whole garb and everything. And Stephen Hill, he wore, I was at his house when, when his son was sitting Shiva, he wore, uh, you know, kind of in between the Hasidic and non-Hasidic garb, but he was definitely Hasidic, but he wore a long robe, but he didn't wear the fur hat, whereas his son does wear that fur hat. You know, he wore more uh, uh, like the Hamburg hat or, or a bowler, that type of hat was what I remember him wearing. But he had, I remember his grandson's wedding in, in upstate New York, and he had the long robe and everything on, just, you know, clean shaven and, the Hamburg hat instead of the first Strymel hat. That, hmm. You know, those are the kind of things. So, so you it's, have it's mostly garb, but uh, even there, there's variants. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. Um, all right. So when you think of people, and when I say you, I mean me. And when I say when I think of all of my images, you know, basically all my information about prison, prison life, prisoners comes from media, comes from TV, movies the news to a certain extent, you know, whatever. So how good these sources are, probably not very. But you, you hear about people who went to prison and they find God. But usually it's, you know, born-again Christian or they convert to Islam or something. Very rarely do you think Judaism or Hasidic Judaism. So how how, how do the prisoners generally react you i mean is it is it almost like they're meeting someone from another country or is it just like eh, it's just rabbi joe can you imagine a magical world a magical world a magical world filled with elves and fairies and pixies and sprites whose only job is to make people happy they want to see you smile and laugh and sing and dance a little these elves and fairies and pixies and sprites suddenly appear when the junk in your life disappears Call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We make junk disappear. All you have to do is point. There. You did it. Now you can see the elves and fairies and pixies and sprites. The dogs and cats that crawl onto your lap and take a nap. The babies that look at you and smile. The delivery people that tell you to have a wonderful day. The neighbors that wave whenever they see you. Call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Invite us to your house. We'll only be there a few minutes. And then you'll look at babies and smile. And tell delivery people to have a wonderful day. And wave at your neighbors whenever you see them. Call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Or visit 1-800-GOT-JUNK.COM. Rise above inflation with Freedom Federal Credit Union Savings Certificates. Like CDs, Freedom Certificate Specials are federally insured by the NCUA. Take your savings higher with Freedom Federal Credit Union Certificate Specials. I, at this point, especially I've been in this particular prison working there for for five years. It's it's just Rabbi Joe. I'm you know I'm respected by all the different religions there. I get along with with the Christians and with the Muslims and like I said with these other uh, minority religions and. I just, you know, I I do wear my garb most of the time when I'm in the prison. Sometimes I'll, you know, especially in the summer, I might be a little bit, you know, less strict of how I dress. But for the most part, excuse me, you you edit these, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna try anyway. But uh, yeah. you know, kids can't live when, with them. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I, I, it's, it's like you said, I'm, I'm just Rabbi Joe. It doesn't, you know, they, most people, sometimes people are surprised. I, I, you know, and also the fact that I'm the supervisor, especially I started right at the top. I did, I did do work earlier, um, in the federal prisons when I was, I was, I was a rabbi of a synagogue in Virginia and I used to go once a week to a federal prison complex, which was three prisons. And there actually was a Hasidic rabbi who was the, an inmate there, and another, and a, and a conservative rabbi was an inmate there, and, and you know, so a lot, of, another, you know, Jewish people who one, you know, another fellow who was a cantor, and he was, uh, his grandfather was a very famous Israeli professor. That was in the federal prison. There you had much more of the, you know, the classical Jewish type of, you know, stereotypical Jewish inmates that are that are Jewish and, and, you know, knowledgeable. And my job was just to come in once a week for an hour to each prison and just minister to them particularly. Um, but I was always interested in doing more in the prisons. And when, when this, you know, work in the state opened up, I managed to get the job again, right at the top, you know, throughout the state where I work, you do have these part-time chaplains who come in maybe once a month or once a week or once every other week. Um, but I was the first Jewish chaplain to be full-time, and I started right, you know, as a full-time, as a supervisor. Uh, and I'm a trailblazer because there is another rabbi now on the other side of the state who is who has the same position in another prison. But I remember one time uh, I had hired a, a Protestant chaplain who was actually a head chaplain in a federal prison nearby. He retired and we hired him part time in our prison. And I was, uh, we were, the Native Americans were having their ceremony. I think it might have been after we hired the Native American chaplain or before, I'm not sure. But one of the inmates said, Oh, Rabbi, how do you, how do you feel about having your boss here? And I was like, You know, the deputy's not here. He said, No, no, the pastor. I was like, No, no, I'm his boss. You know, he's someone who's, you know, almost twice my age, and but uh, I was his boss, and, you know, most of the chaplains who I supervised are, you know, old enough to be my parent. Um, but that was just, you know, the work that I was, including another rabbi, another Hasidic rabbi, who, uh, again, he, he'd been working there, you know, for 30 years in prison, more than that, and, again, he just, he was just coming in once a week to, to do do his thing, but I didn't didn't get rid of him just because they hired me. Sure. And that was the, but, but, you know, that was the, the, you know, one of the types of things that for a while, it took a while for the people to realize what I was doing there, who I was exactly. Um, but uh, once they realized, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the supervisor of the, of the, of the department, you know, then they, they realized, but even with that, you know, I, I got, got along well with everybody there pretty quickly. And I, I would kind of go out of my way to try to somewhat befriend the people who you might think might not be comfortable with me and my religion, you know, just to show them that I'm just a regular guy, just like them, and I'm just a regular human being. And, and that really, I think, made a, a really good impression, you know, whether it might be someone who was a follower of Louis Farrakhan or some of the, um, 
even people, you know, might be some kind of a white supremacist or something, and they they belong in prison. But you know, I, I, I'm I'm not making a mission of like I'm going to convert them, but just show them that you know all the stereotypes are not necessarily true. You know, and um, and, and it's, it's been successful in that. Okay, so uh, you know, so now now we know how it is now. But five years ago, was there more of a um, I don't know culture shock or not not so much. You just were diplomatic. Yeah. No. It. It. it you know. As it was more maybe personality clashes sometimes that I worked through and and was successful. But I never really had any issues of you know because I'm Jewish or because I'm Hasidic or because I'm a rabbi. You know, you you might have you know typical types of jokes and people asking about. You know what's a bris, and uh, are, is every rabbi a moil, and uh, these types of things. But also the, the fact that I'm so well versed in popular culture. You know, I could talk about you know who are my bosses are big Seinfeld fans. You know, and I and I can, you know, I I can hold hold the uh, <laughs> hold, hold my own. You know, with Seinfeld, I'm more of a Simpsons guy, but I I I. I Grew up watching Seinfeld too, so I was I was able to really, you know, make those connections and I really get to know. Him. And then my other boss, who actually is Jewish but also uh, not religious at all, but uh, he was a, a fan of the kaiju movies. You know, we would talk about the Frankenstein conquers the world and where the gargantuas and all the Godzilla movies and some of the other sci-fi movies that that we we got along. You know, talking about. Yeah, War of the Gargantuans was one of those movies that I know that I saw, but at some point, nobody knew what I was talking about, and it became like my own little private Mandela effect. But thank goodness for the internet that you could find out that it was actually real, and I've actually found it again. And and along with this movie Gargoyles from 1972 or something, and while my memory of how, who the characters were and 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 their interactions was completely different, the basics of the movie I, I remembered it pretty well. Um, yeah, the one thing I that you know, because I I remember gargoyles I only heard of later, uh-huh. and I did see gargoyles, but War of the Gargantuas I remember seeing you know on TNT Monster Vision, and the the one scene that really stuck out for me was the the baby gargantua uh-huh. <laughs> and, that that where they had that flashback to oh didn't didn't we have a baby gargantua and the fact that like. It was called a gargantua when it was this tiny little, you know, looked like uh, not maybe not an Ewok. Maybe it reminded me more of the from Land of the Lost, one of the Chaka. The little, yeah, it was. It wasn't quite as good as Chaka, but it was. It, it was one of those types of creatures, and then and then it grows into this big giant, and 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 actually, of course, and I think in the original Japanese they were called Frankenstein. Yeah, well, sure. Why not? <laughs> all right. So, all right. So, in, in the, I, I'm so in the prison. Do you did you ever have any trouble? You know, I guess I guess it's called ministering to um, people of different faiths that they they rejected that that you couldn't be an appropriate chaplain, or is it more that um, you know? There's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of empty days, and and, and anything that's different is they'll, you know they'll they'll take the variety. I think it's more the second way, and also 
since we're not a proselytizing religion, a lot of people were comfortable with me, meaning I could, I could minister to an atheist and they were comfortable to know I wasn't trying to convert them. I was just trying to be there for them, you know, if they had a loss in the family or something like that. And I, and, you know, and that I respected them, even if I disagreed with them, um, you know, that, and that it was, it, it's been, you know, really, um, I think a, a very positive aspect. And, and that was one of the reasons, cause I was shocked when I got this job because I had applied for jobs that were particularly for rabbis, um, and never heard back from those jobs. And then this position, which was, you know, here I'm competing, like you said, with, you know, with Christian clergy and not my expectation was that's who's typically going to get this type of job is, is a, is a, you know, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, it's going to be usually going to be a Christian minister is going to get this job. Maybe an imam could get the job. And what I was told, actually the imam at the time told me that the uh, representative from central office from the capital, uh, who, who himself is a Christian minister, uh, but more liberal minister, he said, um, you know, we, I think you should take the rabbi because you know, the Christians want everyone to be Christian and the Muslims want everyone to be Muslim and the rabbi will just do his job and make sure everybody's treated fairly. And that was kind of, uh, you know, and I guess I made a good impression and still there five years later. So I'm, I'm right. hoping to be able to, to be there, you know, another 15, 20 years and so, all right, here's the question I have to ask everybody that, yes, you know, of course, everyone is, is the same in every course. So do, did you study Kabbalah or Gematria or both? Yes, uh, that, uh, Kabbalah is a major part of the Hasidic tradition. So it's even though it's Kabbalah may not be what's taught in the schools where I went, but I've, I've ha- I have a lot of training in that and especially one teacher who I've really taken as, as a teacher in Kabbalah is Rabbi Bart Sadok who is on, often on the TV show Ancient Aliens. I only met him in person one time but I talk to him on the phone every now and then and email him and and uh, again I might not agree with him on everything but he's uh, I've learned a lot from him and I've also from him learned a lot about being open-minded uh, to working with people, even though he's very strictly orthodox and, you know, not waving, wavering in his own faith and his own devotion, but still being pragmatic enough to understand we live in a world where there are different religions and, uh, you know, and that, that's really where I've gotten a lot of my, you know, ideas from and, and his teachings of Kabbalah, the way he teaches it, which might be different than others teaching. He's teaching the same text, but teaching in a, a way that's very different. But I, I've been learning these these texts for a long time, even though I'm not 40 years old yet. It, everyone always says, oh, you're supposed to be 40 years old. He, it's actually not true. And that's one of the things Rabbi Bartzadok says, he says even small children could be taught Kabbalah, you know, but it's, it, you might not, you might get a deeper understanding, you know, as you gain wisdom as you're older, but the, the ideas in it should be, um, you know, pretty, pretty strong. And gematria is, you know, a pretty standard thing that we use. And, uh, but, you know, one, also one of, I discovered that one of my ancestors is Rabbi Judah Lowe, 
very famous from Prague in the 1500s, who, according to legend, made the golem. He oh, okay. A lot of, there's a lot of, uh, and that, that's not that big of a deal. You, you, he's probably one of your ancestors too. He, he had a lot of children and grandchildren, so <laughs> it's not it's not that rare to be, especially you go back that far, 500 years ago. But well, have you I'd tested actually, it? Do you have? Do you, did you inherit any of those abilities? Do you have like a an army of like mudmen? I, I don't, but I, uh, yeah, my, my wife said, you know, we, we have our kids, that's our army. But uh, I remember Rabbi Bart Sadok, who I, I just mentioned from the History Channel, he, when the one time I met him in, in person, he mentioned something about, you know, uh, if you see uh, a, a golem of Godzilla attacking, <laughs> attacking, you know, some, some place, he, he might have made that. <laughs> that was... Who, who's who's closer to a golem? Now I'm going to go into your pop culture. The thing yeah. from the Fantastic Four, the Sandman from Spider-Man, or the Grey Gargoyle. You see, I have to. My daughter is the is the is the Spider-Man. Oh no 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 help no help. Yeah. You have to, this, this is for you. Yeah, probably, probably the thing from the Fantastic Four, but okay. I don't really know those others so well. Ah well, if you saw Spider-Man three, you you would know the Sandman, and or the more recent Spider-Man where his the the, the Sinister Six came out. So it's the yeah, Thomas Hayden no, Church I, character. I I kind of cut off my uh, a lot of my uh, pop culture pretty much in the sixties. I'm uh, you know I, ah. sometimes I know I'll go a little further than Star Wars, but uh, I, I'm more of a fan of the, the older stuff. Like if you if you ask me about superheroes. I'm more likely to know about a Republic serials, you know, from the forties, things like that, you know, like the, the Batman, uh, Columbia serials from the forties, you know, also like where, where he's driving a regular car. Oh, okay. Catching a taxi. So what, what, what are the, what, what, if I'm sure this is hard to do, but what, what's a sort of a simple definition explanation as to what Kabbalah is and what Gematria is. So Kabbalah means, it means tradition or something that's received. And it's, it's Jewish mysticism, but there are different types of it. And, you know, there's the, the scholarly type, there's the meditative type, the prophetic type, and there's the magical type. And I think the most controversial is, is the magical or practical Kabbalah. That's the one that, you know, people say you should stay away from that stuff as opposed to the, you know, you know, other writings that are, you know, commentaries on, on the Bible or explanations of Jewish practices, you know, why do we do this? And, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, imagery that, you know, a lot of it touches on, uh, you know, not, well, it's the other way around. Uh, Carl Jung was, you know, famous psychologist. He wasn't Jewish and, uh, he, but he was a big student of Kabbalah and Hasidic teachings. Uh, and it's interesting because he, argued so much with Freud, who was Jewish, but, you know, was not Orthodox. And, and the differences between them, and it's, it was somewhat ironic that, that, that the, the German Christian Carl Jung was much more Jewish in his uh, ideas and, and very influenced with Kabbalah, the ideas, the archetypes um, that appear, you know, he finds in all the different religions, and he talks about the mythologies of all the different, you know, ancient myths, you know, Greek and Norse mythology and so forth, uh, that it's, 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 it's in a different 
way because of the strict monotheism of Judaism, it's going to be more about attributes, you know, the different, you know, emotions and parts of the brain, you know, as, as the archetypes, as opposed to having archetypes of what you see in, in other mythologies that are represented as, as human beings. Although, again, despite that, instead of seeing gods and demigods in these in these uh, myths of the other religions and Judaism and the Kabbalah, oftentimes these archetypes will be identified with people from the Bible. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Joseph, David, those all represent these different archetypes of different emotions and different aspects of, of the psyche uh, and, and put that together. Gematria is numerology. It's a very simple uh, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is also a number. It's almost like Roman numerals, but the difference is is that when you spell words, we'll say, well, the, these words add up to this number, and this word, which might not seem to be connected, also adds up to this number, and the connections between, so there, there's some connection between these two words, because, you know, if this word is the same gematria as God's name, it, it indicates something very sacred and holy, or or even two of God's names added together, and then the word you know, and, and it might come to number ninety one, and the word Amen is also ninety one, or Amen in Hebrew, and you know that that there's those connections. So like when and so the Kabbalists might say, oh, when you say Amen in the liturgy, you're going to meditate on these letters of God's name because it's the same gematria. So that, that's the interface between Kabbalah and gematria. Gematria appears outside of Kabbalistic, even, it's even somewhat in the Bible. I mean, it's certainly, certainly the Kabbalists discovered in the Bible, but there are, you know, more direct references that, you know, in, in scripture, uh, I mean, when I say the Bible, I mean the Hebrew Bible, Christians would call the Old Testament. Uh, at least with Protestants we call Old Testament Catholics have more books in their Old Testament. But right. The Septuagint. The, well, the Septuagint is the uh, is the Greek translation, and that included, like you said, more books, which Protestants would call Apocrypha, but the Catholics would just consider part of their Old Testament, might call it the Deuterocanon. But you're right, it is, you know, generally from the Septuagint, even though... Traditionally, they said the Septuagint. We say the Septuagint was only the Torah, was only the first five books of the Bible. Right, the other Septa being seven, later. so there's two others. Which which are the two well, books? Well, well, no, Septuagint comes from that a tradition that there were seventy elders who translated it. Oh, okay. Oh, and that's interesting. Just, yeah, that that King Ptolemy, who was the you know, Greek king in 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 Egypt. Right. Uh, sequestered 70 rabbis to translate the the torah into greek and he he wanted them all they were they were sequestered separately and he wanted them all to give the exact same translation and we say it was a miracle that they all translated the same but also kind of a sad thing because it it it, it lost that mystical aspect it's it's putting the bible just as another book on the shelf instead of again that spirituality of this living, breathing document that's filled with, you know, much deeper meaning than just what you read 
in a translation. And so in, in classical Jewish thought, that's a, it's a sad thing that the Torah was translated, not, not because we don't want the world to have access to this literature, but because we want the world to understand that there's much more depth than what you just have in a plain translation. So you, there's, a, there's other translations, like Aramaic translations, we call the Targum, that are much more robust and not as literal, you know, and, and that, that, that idea of biblical literacism is kind of, you know, it's not, not that we say that there isn't the literal meaning, but there's so much more, you know, and, and that's what's lost when you just have, I, again, I don't mean to pick on another religion, but you just have like a King James Bible on the shelf. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It's, it's very nice, but it's missing. So it's, it, it has the body of the text, but it's missing some of that soul. What are the what are the books that are in the Septuagint that aren't in the um, five books? Well, the, the the Hebrew Bible is more than just the five books. The five books are, uh, you know, you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then the other books of the Hebrew Bible, you know, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, all the different prophets, and the Psalms, and and the Proverbs, and Job, and various other books which by the jewish count would be 24 books by a christian count would be 39 books they're the same books but then you have like you were asking the additional books that the catholics have that jews don't have and most protestants don't have or if they do they call it apocrypha curiously though there's the two books of the maccabees which are you know which tell the story of hanukkah Mm -hmm. uh the catholic bible and not in the jewish bible they tell the story from different perspectives. Um, and then you have um, a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, uh, which most people say, you know, is not authentic. But it, uh, And then another book, um, Ecclesiasticus, which is very similar to Proverbs. And it's actually quoted quite often in Jewish texts in the Talmud. And a, a few others, Susanna and the Elders, you know, which is, you know, other stories about Daniel. Um, additions to which is sometimes considered additions to the book of Daniel and additions to the book of Esther. And then uh, one, really one of my favorites there is the book of Tobit, which is just a very, you know, nice, colorful story of this, you know, this guy who he's depressed and he has, he prays that he should die. But before he dies, he wants to send his son to go like pay off a debt or collect a debt. And, and meanwhile, in the other, where he's sending his son, there's this woman who was married a bunch of times, and and her husbands were all killed by a demon, Asmodeus. Ah. And and this demon, Asmodeus, uh, is jealous. He wants to marry this woman, and she prays that she should die. And then God hears their prayer and says, "I'm not gonna. I'm I'm gonna do the opposite. I'm gonna heal both of you." He sends the angel Raphael to go to appear as a human being and walk with this Tobit's son, Tobias, to and and heal both of them. Uh and and it's just a very and, and like he comes and he meets this woman and he decides he's gonna marry her, the the son Tobias, and the father in law is already digging a grave for him because he, he knows like all of her all of her husbands died. But meanwhile the angel Raphael disguised as a human being 
taught him how to kill the demon and banish or to banish the demons and uh, and so that's how you know he survived the night with his bride it's just and then when he comes home with his bride and his father is blind because of bird crap in his eyes <laughs> and it's like it's just like all these like weird things you know just and and when he gets home he hugs his father and the ointment that the angel taught him falls into his father's eyes and he regains his sight and he sees his his son and his and his new daughter-in-law and like you know everything is restored it's just a a beautiful very nice type of a story uh, again, it's not part of our tradition. It's it's mentioned maybe briefly somewhere in the Talmud or in the Midrash, um, but it's not really not it's not in the Talmud. But it, 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 I've heard that it it's mentioned somewhere in some rabbinical text very briefly, but it's not really accepted. But it's just such a well written, nice story it would make a great movie, you know. And then in the end, the angel reveals that he's been an angel all along. And it's like uh, you know. Uh, it, 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 would, it would, it would, I think it would make a nice movie. <laughs> uh-huh. Probably has been made into a movie. Um, I, I found it. Maybe, maybe a YouTube video. <laughs> I stumbled upon something about Camacho, and I have no idea if this is accurate or not. And the underlying premise is also something that I am not sure is accurate or not. But, you know, everyone says that 666 is the number of the beast. And then some years ago, I had heard, and, and it's been verified a few times, that that was a mistranslation, that it's actually 616. What I did not know, and again, I don't know if the premise is correct, either premise, was that the number, it, it actually comes from Gematria. That, that's where the number of the beast came from, by finding the numbers in, in Gematria. So is there anything to that, that, that there were words that translated into, or had the numera- numerical value of 666 or 666, and that's where the number of the beast came? And is there anything to that there was a mistranslation? Well, that, that comes from the Book of Revelation, which is in the Christian Bible. It's not part of my tradition, so I don't really know enough about it. I've never heard anything. Can you imagine a magical world? A magical world. A magical world filled with elves and fairies and pixies and sprites. Whose only job is to make people happy. They want to see you smile. And laugh. And sing. And dance a little. These elves and fairies and pixies and sprites suddenly appear. When the junk in your life disappears. Call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We make junk disappear. All you have to do is point. There. You did it. Now you can see the elves and fairies and pixies and sprites. The dogs and cats that crawl onto your lap and take a nap. The babies that look at you and smile. The delivery people that tell you to have a wonderful day. The neighbors that wave whenever they see you. Call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Invite us to your house. We'll only be there a few minutes. And then you'll look at babies and smile. And tell delivery people to have a wonderful day. And wave at your neighbors whenever you see them. Call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Or visit 1-800-GOT-JUNK.com. This summer, your child can improve their math and reading skills at Kumon Learning Centers. Practice now for more confidence next school year. Enroll today and save up to $50. Call 1-800-ABC-MATH. That, uh, you know, links it within the Jewish tradition, but obviously the writers of the Christian Bible were Jewish. And it, I, I did read through, I have read through the New Testament, and I did read through Revelation, and it's certainly written in that style of a Kabbalistic work, but it's, it's gets so many things wrong as far as from the Kabbalist's point of view 
that, uh, you know, it doesn't fit into the Jewish, you know, tradition. Uh, it's trying. It's very clearly trying to do that. But then whoever wrote this, you know, just didn't know basic things that were in, again, what the Christians would call the Old Testament. So that's, you know, it, it, and, and there is a lot of clearly numerology throughout that book. Again, it's been many years since I've read it. And even it's interesting because, you know, at the prison, you know, we have Catholics and, and uh, Russian Orthodox Christians, and they, they kind of shy away from that book. But the one uh, Eastern Orthodox priest told me that, you know, the book of Revelation was meant to be a meditative tool as opposed to a book of, you know, telling the future. And, and interestingly, that fits again into that same tradition. Again, they, they went in their own direction, but that idea of using a text like that as a meditative tool, meaning, uh, you know, an Eastern Orthodox monk might sit and, and meditate and chant this book just to get into kind of an altered state of consciousness as opposed to, you know, getting something that's supposed to represent, you know, a, a an actual prophecy, uh, or I mean, get into if that fits into more of the types of traditions of the Kabbalah. Again, it's not a text that we would use, but that's kind of where I would see that that's you know coming from. And and uh, but I'm not familiar with with it being six one six. I don't. Know. My wife said that's the area code for Philadelphia. But, uh, <laughs> no, that's two one five. I know. So I don't know. Yeah. How I, I do that. Yeah, uh, yeah, don't don't play with me in area codes. Um, so, uh, uh, all right, so we'll we'll move off of um, the revelations. I don't talking about it, I just I, I can't I can't be authoritative. No, no, I mean that that was the question. If you if you don't know the answer, you don't know the answer. Um, but uh, we we are going to use that as a segue. We're going to turn Bible Ragnarok and segue into regular Ragnarok because it sounds like with the the with all the different um, uh, belief systems there that you have a you have an ongoing course on comparative philosophies, religion, mythology, whatever mythos and ligos, whatever you want to look at it, including you said that you had a North mythology. Um, uh, pagan priest, I guess is the term. Um, and the, the, there's also uh, a First Nations. I, I guess it's a shaman. I, I, I don't know. Um, so what do you all talk about? Like what, like when you swap stories, uh, you know, what, what other things, I mean, so much lore, mythology, so much stuff from comic books and movies comes from various different mythologies and lore. It's you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I think that was also from, from the Bible somewhere. Um, and you know, what, what kind of stories do you swap? What, what do you talk about when you, when you're talking about, um, doctrine and scripture, but, but, but the, the more, fun side of it well we definitely uh that's that's a very good question i i, I know today you know uh, when the the norse pagan priest uh, they he has a title uh ghosty and I, I think he has another title within his tribe of, but uh, i don't remember exactly um uh, uh Hamstar or something like that that could be He's somewhat of both of a, a priest and a chieftain in a kind of a you know tribalistic group. Uh, this particular chaplain who who I hired and they started as a volunteer and then we 
we hired him part time. He comes once a week to to uh, to minister to his guys. Uh, you know, I mean the the I called the the different blocks because there was something else going on in the prison, so everything got pushed off. And the other rabbi who comes in at the same time once a week, he just gave up. He's like, I'm going home. We'll just cancel. So I was calling all the blocks around the prison and saying, all right, the Jewish class canceled tonight, but the uh, but the pagan group is still going on as soon as, you know, we're open back to coming. So then one of the one of the guards, one of the COs said, oh, uh, the Tosor is still in the building. So then uh, I mentioned that to the, to the, to the priest there and he said, uh, he said oh, I, I guess he's right, but I don't have the red hair. And, you know, that was his. And he, you know, he, he assumes that I know more about Norse mythology. I never really knew much about Norse mythology ever. I, I knew more about Greek and Roman mythology and, and not even that much about those. I never really, you know, was familiar with any of that. So I had to learn a lot and still don't know that much about it. But I know one thing I remember the, the Norse, uh, chaplain talking about was um you know a picture somewhere in in um iceland maybe and and that it was a mountain that if you saw that this was actually a giant you know laying down and that goes back to their traditions of the emir and the bones of the emir being you know the primordial uh you know building blocks of of, of this world of midgard and uh, you know, I, I when I hear Emir, I think of Ray Harryhausen in the Twenty Million Miles to Earth. Even though they never call it that in the movie, that was what Ray Harryhausen called the, the monster from Venus. Uh, right. Even though I don't know how it has any connection to that, but it, you know that that was how I always you know thought of that. And you know that goes along with you mentioned the indigenous uh, community. Um, again, I was always interested in, in Bigfoot and UFOs and things like that. And the, uh, the, the Native American, he's called a ceremonial chief, meaning he's, he's the chief of ceremonies in his tribe. And so we call him chief. And he, uh, you know, he taught, he's from the Lenape nation. And in the, in the Lenape people, they have a Bigfoot type of a creature, and he's called Misingh. And he's very important in their tradition. Uh, he's kind of uh, somewhat like a patron saint, especially of the ethical hunter. Uh, that you know, and before they go, uh, before the hunting season begins, they have a ceremony to the missing, and there's a song that goes along with it, and there's a mask that uh, that someone wears to represent the missing and. I asked the chief, can you bring the mask into the prison? He said, no, that would kick their butts. He said, they're not ready for the energy that's in this mask, but we'll sing the song. And he actually has a necklace with the mask of the knee thing on it, which is, you know, it's a creature that's, you know, a large humanoid creature covered with hair, but wearing a mask that's half black and half red, if I remember correctly. And the totem of this, of this creature being the, the guardian of of the hunt, he 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 protects the ethical hunter and he punishes the unethical or wasteful hunter. And there's a whole story about the um, how 
his face was put on this mask. I don't remember. I remember the chief telling the story. It's something to do with the um, with the, the Delaware Water Gap in that area. Oh, okay. Um, and that, that that's where this lore of the Meesing came about. But the chief told me, he said he's he's encountered Meesing. He said both in vision quests and manifested in the woods and seen the footprints. But he said, you know, you're not going to catch this being because it is, you know, a, more of a spiritual, you know, being. It's not or a trans-dimensional being, not something that, you know, is, is, is going to leave behind bones and a pelt, but it'll leave footprints. Um, hmm. You know, might leave a few pieces of hair, but it's not going to leave, you know, a whole body. And uh, which is very interesting because that's something, you know, that appears throughout the different lore, as opposed to in the, in the Jewish tradition, there isn't in the Talmud a mention of a, a, a kind of a Bigfoot type of creature. Even seems to be hinted to in the, in the Book of Job and even other places in the Bible, and and specifically being a physical creature, um, you know, just a regular animal. It's described having some human characteristics, both. Uh, biologically and legally, meaning that it would uh, it, it would uh, have some of the same laws as, as a human corpse as opposed to an animal corpse, and and this is mentioned, and, and there are different legends about this creature. Um, it's called in, in the, the Talmud. It's called Adne Hasada, which means the, the the lords of the field, and there is one version of the the myth that it actually has an umbilical cord that goes into the earth and it grows kind of like a plant out of the earth but in a humanoid form but it's very um very dangerous um you know deadly creature and the only way to kill it is to shoot an arrow through that umbilical cord that attaches it to the earth but other versions um of the discussion paint it more as a regular you know, uh, some sort of a wild man, human, you know, kind of half-human creature. Like Enkidu. The gorilla, but, was that? Like Enkidu from uh, Gilgamesh. Yeah, yeah. But but as a species of, of meaning, it's it's listed not in the, where it's mentioned in the Talmud, it's, it doesn't have that whole myth, it's just the commentaries mention the myth. As it's listed there, it's just listed along with a list of other animals, just regular meaning, it's a legal discussion of like the difference between domestic animals and wild animals, and there are different laws in Jewish law between domestic animals and wild animals. Would it and have been what, on Noah's Ark? It would, would seem so, but I, I guess so. Unless, unless, you know, again, the different versions. So some people say, well, it's just talking about a gorilla or or chimpanzee is not necessarily talking about something we don't know about. Well, that's not fun. Yeah, it's, it's it's much more. The more fun is that that it's some kind of a half, some kind of a plant creature that's growing out of the, the ground, and and then and then the other version is that it's you know more like you know there is some cryptid that that is a physical being like Bigfoot or something else, but it, um, oh, it's definitely why not both. Why not yeah, both? There's, a, there's a swamp thing yeah. and there's a Sasquatch. I mean, you know, what, yeah. what, 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 we're not stingy here. This is the Garden of Doom. We, 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 have, we have room for all um, semi-sentient or fully sentient, um, you know, uh, cousins of humanity. Um, yeah. 
what other uh, sort of similarities or parallels have you found between whether it's Norse or the indigenous uh, traditions and sort of your own? I guess uh, one aspect that I guess all three of these traditions have is the reverence for ancestors. Um, you know, one of the most interesting things to me, you know, like in the prisons, the Norse community has a bad reputation of being racist, white supremacist. The chaplain who I hired is definitely not a racist. He welcomes anybody in his tribe, but he's very tribalistic. He, mm-hmm. But he'll, but they're, they're one of the COs is, is African American, and he he expressed interest in in this religion and and like the uh, the, the chaplain is like so come come to our meetings come to our you know he's like he keeps pushing like when when am I going to see you at, at Yule or at, at Midsummer or something you know so um, <clears throat> meaning you know out on the street but, you know he, he's an employee there and uh, but uh, one of the most interesting things that happened there was uh, you know I I had ordered you know for uh, you know, because we have libraries of all the different religions, and we have hundreds and hundreds of Christian books and dozens of other books, and we didn't have any books for the Norse pagans or the Wiccans or the, you know. As your day-to-day costs continue to increase, it's more important than ever to save smartly. Rise above inflation with Freedom Federal Credit Union Savings Certificates. Like CDs, Freedom Certificate Specials are available with a variety of terms to fit your needs and are federally insured by the NCUA. Take your savings higher with Freedom Certificate Specials. Visit freedomfcu.org to take advantage of these limited-time offers at Freedom Federal Credit Union. Buddhists, Hindus, and I managed to get donations for some of them, but we, we weren't able to find donations for the, the the Norse pagans or the Wiccans, so we, we had some you know, budget. So we ordered some and the guys were so happy. So they were celebrating their ceremony, the bloat ceremony where they drink out of a horn and usually they would drink mead, but in the prison they get apple juice. Right. And, um, and the, their, their chaplain was teaching them that there's three rounds. You pass the cup around and take a sip and you toast different so one is the first round is for their gods and then the second is for ancestors and heroes and the third is toasts boasts and oaths so when they got to the third round of toasts boasts and oaths uh one guy he said i'm toasting the rabbi because he got us books for our library and and i was like this must be the first time that a rabbi was toasted at at a norse pagan (laughs) ceremony like that um but you know discussing with that you know i I remember you know he was talking about you know his uh the the priest was talking about you know he found in his ancestry you know someone who went with um i don't know if it was richard the lionheart you know going from from saxony to england and and that he found that in his ancestry and, and you know it reminded me like i said of you know, my reverence for Rabbi Lowe and, you know, and, and, you know, and other, you know, ancestors in my weather and, and from him, Rabbi Lowe, you know, traditionally they say goes back to King David 
and you, they have the family trees that mention all the different kings and prophets in there. And it's like, you know, when I'm reading the Bible, I feel so, oh, this is Isaiah. This is not just, you know, a great prophet, but it's my ancestor. King Hezekiah is my ancestor. And it, it, it makes me feel something, you know, very excited to read these books. And then later books, you know, the writings of Rabbi Loa and uh, one of his grandchildren, who I revere very much, um, another ancestor of mine. And that same type of idea of, you know, having this uh, reverence and the uh, ancestors, which, and, and again, I found that same idea with the, with the traditional Christians, you know, with the veneration of saints. And I, you know, I was talking to, you know, one of the, 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 the Orthodox priest, he was mentioning how, you know, uh, showing, um, you know, reverence and and, um, and uh, devotion at his ancestors' graves, the same as he would to a saint. And that's a kind of a similar thing of how we have the yard site. And in the Hasidic tradition, it's you know most Jews will sell will mark the yard site of their family members, but then the Hasidim will have both their family yard sites, but also the different you know, saints that they revere, you know, the, the Tzaddik and the Rebus and, and, you know, like we just had the holiday of Lag Bomer, which is really like a saint's day, you know, very similar, it's, it, you know, with this devotion to Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochoi, and it, it includes things that look kind of pagan, to be honest, lighting a bonfire and dancing around the bonfire. Uh, obviously, it's, we're strict monotheists, but we still have this you know, reverence for saints, and it, it just we have different saints, and and the the pagan, the Norse pagans claim that they don't worship their gods as much as they fellowship with them. Much they say often, like how the Catholics and, and Orthodox Christians do with their saints. You know that they that you know they don't worship their saints, just that they have uh, you know a, a fellowship and a bond and a kinship with them. And, uh, you know, even though, again, these are very radically different traditions, there's surprising how much there is in common. But then you might have, again, in some parts of the Jewish world, will say, well, you Hasidic Jews, you're, you're really pagan. You're not really, you know, authentic, uh, you know, monotheists because of the way that, that you approach things or other Kabbalists, you know, and certainly uh, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai was considered a great Kabbalist and, it, it, traditionally, is, uh, the Zohar is attributed to him, but then other historians and scholars say, well, he didn't really write it. You know, it was someone who lived, you know, because he, he, he was someone who lived almost 2,000 years ago, 1,800 years ago. It was really written more like 800 years ago. And, you know, that whole fight within, within the Jewish world, is this authentic, is it not? And I'm, you know... I'm more from the traditional sway of saying it is authentic. And again, it might just be like you said, because it's fun that way. It, 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 the story is better that way. It doesn't necessarily have to be historically 100% accurate, as, as, but as, as much as the archetypes that we. You the the know, Jews are like college professors arguing about who wrote what first. That's a, <laughs> so, um, very much so. I mean, that, that, that's. That, that, that's something you're going to find all throughout. Uh, all, 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 the Talmud is just a book of arguments. You know, if you, if you open it up, it's, you know, people often say, oh, there's all these crazy things in the Talmud. They're like, well, you don't real, they don't realize they're taking one quote out of context 
these were two people fighting about, well, what does this text mean? It wasn't about, they weren't making a statement as much as, you know, and certainly it's not authoritative every statement. It's That's why later we have codes of Jewish law to say, well, this is what we follow, you know, just because we had all these opinions in history, we only follow this opinion and not that opinion, you know, that type of thing. And sometimes the rejected opinions are like, oh, this is in this holy book. Well, it's a rejected opinion. It's right. not, you know. I have to ask you this. How, how did you deal with, or how did they deal with you with in prison with the, the Aryan nation, the white supremacist and, and the, you know, the nation of Islam that, you know, is, you know, part of the doctrine is anti-Jewish. How, you know, how, you know, how, how did you approach that? How did you deal with it? Was it a well, problem? Uh, one thing, like I mentioned, a, a lot of those people, not all of them, and not all people who have that faith are from from the racist perspective. But uh, you know, one of the reasons why I felt it was important to hire the Norse pagan chaplain was to kind of uh, you know uh, get, reduce some of that the, the white supremacist ideas. Meaning, if someone is claiming that this is their religion, that they're Norse pagan, and and they're using it as an excuse you know, to, to be a white supremacist, I, I'm saying, well, you know what, we have here the Norse pagan priest who's going to teach you your religion, you know, yeah, I'm not, not saying that you have to change your views, but I haven't run into that many real, you know, Aryan nation white supremacists. I know there have been some in the prison, but I don't necessarily interact with everybody. But in general, you know, like, I remember there was one fellow, he was you know, covered with all kinds of tattoos, including a lot of swastikas and everything. And, um, and, and he's listed, you know, as his religion that he's, he's from, that he's, a, you know, Odinist, Norse pagan, something like that. And, um, and I said to him, I said, Oh, would you, would you like to attend the group there? And he said, well, I don't actually believe in this stuff. I just, you know, I like the stories. I like what it represents, but I don't, I don't believe that it's actually real. I was like, well, I think they'll still welcome you because they welcome, there was a, an atheist who just, he was curious and he wanted to see something different and he was welcome there in that group. So they're not going to exclude you from the group just because you view it just as a, a source of inspiration. And, uh, you know, and I just, I got along well with this guy and, um, and again, we, the prison where I work is kind of a low security prison. So if someone is there, they're not the most dangerous types of people necessarily, unless they're severely mentally ill, that's, that's where the more danger comes from. But there, you don't have these, these types of people who are so bent. There are, there is some of that element and they do keep tabs on that. You know, every, every week when the new inmates come in, the, the lieutenant's going to, you know, interview them. Are you a member of any gangs? Do you have any white supremacist or, or, or black separatist views, this and that? And, and then he always says, he's like, it's a belief. You're allowed to believe that. It's not a crime. You know, I'm just asking, you know, and it's, you know, I'm not even trying to change you or anything. And just, you know, but you're, you're free to tell me if you do, you know, and that, that's kind of the way they approach it. It's, it's very laid back type of approach. And that's kind of been my approach. I just, we, we have very few of the nation of Islam. We, most of our Muslims are traditional Sunni. Muslims, particularly of the the um, 
Salafi ideology within Sunni Islam with very few nation of Islam, but I always got along with those guys. I remember in the federal prison, there was one fellow, he was, he was from nation of Islam and we were talking and he said, you know, his mother was part of this group. And, and then he said, he said to me, he said, you know who the most Christ-like person of the 20th century was, was Dr. Martin Luther King. And I was, I was like, I, I can see that, you know, the, all the parallels that, that, you know, you could make there, you know, uh, someone who was, was killed for his beliefs in his thirties, you know, and all of the, but I, I was shocked to hear it from someone from the nation of Islam because they generally didn't have a very good, um, opinion of Dr. King. You know, they had a very different approach than he did. And yet that's what he said. So I, I was surprised. And, and again, along the years, I always try to give people what they need, you know, and I've just been able to get along, kind of like what I said before, just by virtue of showing people that I'm a human being and just, you know, talking to them about, and, and again, I might just talk to them about movies or something else or what jobs they had, you know, things like that. And So it, it, outside of the group or inside when they're, you know, individuals, they, they sort of let their guard down a little bit or they, you know, let, I guess the pride goes and then they just become a human at that point. I, I think so. You know, I, 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 that's what I've more or less seen. I, we don't have enough nation of Islam members to really have a group, you know, whereas the, the Odinists, we have 20 guys signed up for that group, but some of them are Wiccans who are definitely not, Racist, not white supremacists. There. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't assume everyone that the the the, the yeah. Norses. Uh, I mean, f- frankly, when I was thinking nation of uh, Aryan nation, I was thinking more sort of like you know right wing, you know evangelical Christian. I wasn't even thinking you know Norse. But uh, what do I know? There really isn't that much, you know, because I mean, in Nazism there was a lot of the idea of Norse mythology, even, you know, there, there was, Hitler actually said a few times, oh, we have to get rid of this Jewish God, Jesus, and, and go back to to the Norse, you know, the old German Norse gods, you know, that was part of, although he did also persecute some of these pagans, so it was, it was just, it was more about, you know, how could he have more power, because again, when he used Christianity, he liked the ceremony of Christianity, but he didn't want the morality of Christianity, you know, that was part of, you know, and so, so, you know, the Nazis persecuted Christians very strongly as well. So you you don't really have, you know, there is a different group called Christian identity, which has kind of died down. And that's more of where, um, you might have the, the Nazi Aryan nation type views, but that's, and there were a lot of them in Pennsylvania in the past, but they're kind of, you don't hear about them anymore as much as you did maybe 20 years ago. Um, but that was the more dangerous group that had, but the Christian identity ideology was not mainstream Christian. It was, it was about as Christian as, as the nation of Islam was Muslim. You know, the, the ideas were very, very different than, than was mainstream. And the Progressive protects more than just your home and car. You could save when you bundle your motorcycles, ATVs, boats, and RVs. Doesn't that sound good? 
Like the sound of the wind in the trees as your RV sits parked in the forest. Is that the call of the majestic owl? And there's the sound of a tree branch crashing into the roof of your RV. Oof, I guess their nest was in that branch. But you know what does sound good? You're covered with Progressive. So bundle all your vehicles and home in one place and save with the multi-policy discount. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. But for the most part, there, there has been, you know, throughout prison systems, you know, that's, that's where the, the Norse tradition really has, has gotten popular was among a lot of these, um, a lot, a lot of the, the Aryan nation type guys, but we don't have that much of a problem where I work, you know, and, and, uh, okay. it's a very different type of a thing. So I, but whoever I deal with, it's, it, uh, and, and I, and I am, you know, politically a little bit more conservative so I can talk to people you know on all these different sides even though I have some liberal views too I'm kind of eclectic in that way but I uh, I, I can you know I think most people I'm, are eclectic once you get down yeah, to it I'm, I'm always able to, to find you know some common ground with different people and, and talk about you know whether it's politics or religion or popular culture or history and all right, well, let's quick fire some popular culture, some some fun stuff. So, favorite monster? Uh, that's too hard. That's like that's like asking who's my favorite kid. That's, that was my next question. Favorite giant monster, and you can do, and then you could pick favorite like man size. So you can pick like a Godzilla and like a Frankenstein vampire type. You can you can divide it that way, but you have to pick one of each. And, and it's still very difficult. Like it, 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 you know. King Kong is my favorite movie. Okay. That, that that I can say. Does that mean King Kong is my favorite monster? I don't know. Does it? I it's I don't think so. Okay. I, 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 but I, I it's only because. But again, like if if you got to more specifics, if you if you know if you were gonna ask you, um, you know, favorite from a particular studio or a particular director. No, no, I'm not doing that. I can't. I can't do that. I would just be making things. Up. Yeah. Right. Snuffleupagus, monster or elephant. He's not an elephant, but he's he's a monster. Yeah, okay. He's a good monster, a fun monster. I mean, he again, he started off as a as a imaginary creature, and then he became real. You know. Yeah, that that's when uh, the family guy got ruined for me. In the beginning, the the dog you know, only Peter and the baby could hear the dog, and they could hear each other. Right. But uh, so about three quarters into the first season, everybody could hear them all, and that just that just ruined the joke for me. Uh, and apparently, I've missed thirty years of funniness because of me being so rigid. So that, that's a that's a picture into twenty something May. That that was my rigidity. <laughs> As far as as a child and, and and maybe young teen, I was very rigid about with my monsters. I only wanted sci-fi monsters and not fantasy, but fa- fantasy slash horror monsters. So Frankenstein was okay because he was sci-fi. Creature from Black Lagoon was okay because it's it's also kind of sci-fi. But the Wolfman and Dracula were too fantastic and then i i missed out on so much but then later when i got to actually see draco the wolfman i was the wolfman is just a brilliant you know a, a story arc throughout all of those movies that you know I'm, I'm glad eventually i got around to you know not being so snobby that i could only watch something that had some kind of a scientific explanation to it you know okay well, flash gordon or buck rogers flash gordon <laughs> 
Okay. Um, Highlander or Excalibur? I, those are not in my. Yeah, my wife said Highlander, but I don't. I'm not. They're not in my. Uh, that's fine. Well, watch out. You may be uh, about to chop your head off if that's the case. Um, all right. What What is your favorite science fiction cartoon? Science fiction cartoon. Not something right in my. It's like a Thunder of the Barbarians, a Star Trek, as a Planet of the Apes, as the Herculoids, Space Ghost. Uh, no. I grew up watching He Man, but that, I don't consider that science fiction. No, it, uh, it's, it's that's just toy commercials. But uh, but the but the favorite. Ooh, that's a very good question. Right. I guess. I guess the the um, the Fleischer Brothers Superman. Cartoon. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Good. Good. Um, favorite Harryhausen movie. That's Twenty Million Miles to Earth. Even though I love all of them, but it has to be Twenty Million Miles to Earth. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, the original Clash of the Titans with Harry Hamlin or the new one. I don't. I don't even recognize the one. It's only okay. the original. Okay, you're good, good, good. You should. You should. It should be rejected. Um, funny thing is, the, the Kraken isn't even Greek. The Kraken is Norse. I mean, it's it's right. like it's like it was like constructed from that movie, and everyone thinks it's part of like Greek mythology. It's. it's I mean, uh, Harryhausen did that all the time because he brought Hindu. Uh, you know, the Kali into into uh, the Sinbad movies that's sure. supposed to be a, a, a you know, Muslim character. Well, it might have even been pre-Muslim. I mean, I, th- I think Sinbad even was before Muslim. I'm not really even sure to be honest. You could be right. You could be right. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, actually, there's a there's a lot of overlap there. There's a lot, a lot of overlap everywhere. That's 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 been sort of the joy and confusion of the show is is realizing how little I know. And then once I started seeing things, you know, like you know how kids put things together. That's like me. It's like I'm like, wait a minute. Her, you know, Gilgamesh is Hercules, and they're like Beowulf, and that's like Thor, and you know, and then all sorts of things like that. So anyway, Beowulf is very uh, like the, the the Norse pagan chaplain. He he, he considers Beowulf almost, almost scripture. Yeah, like well, Beowulf is, is he should. Very it's well, it, I mean, it is. It's 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 very Thor. It's it's you know, it's it's very heroic. I mean, it's it's all it's also very Greek. It's it's like the the. The fame comes with the conquest. How you get to the conquest isn't necessarily the point. You just have to win. <laughs> it's, it's, and, and you know that, that's yeah. That's I, I had a I had a slight you argument brought that up to me today. Something about one of the you know because the question of uh, whether his guy should meet when when he's absent because he's taking a vacation and and what should they do when his absence if they do meet and then the, and then you know he was citing to me you know something from Beowulf as far as you know. I was like, well, can can they do a ceremony without a leader? You know, in the prison, we want everyone to be equal. We don't want one inmate to be to have any authority over another inmate. And he said, well, you know, he he cited Beowulf as, as a proof that you have to have someone leading a ceremony just in case things get carried away. Because if you get carried away, it's gonna it's not gonna be good. Yeah, I I was listen. I don't pretend to be an expert on, it, but I, I everything I know about Norris is that there is 
there is some central figure and supporting characters in it. But yeah, I, I had a large, uh, not an argument, but a little d- debate with, with someone that, um, about the, um, Troy, you know, the home, Homer book, the Iliad, I said, you know, when did you realize that the Trojans were the good guys? And he's like, well, that's a very Roman way of looking at it. I'm like, I'm like, no, the, the, the Greeks were the bad guys. They, they just were. <laughs> it's like, and, and if you look at the Greek attitudes, it's, it's exactly like the attitudes, like, you know, portrayed in like the show Vikings and or the last Saxon or whatever. It's, it's, it's all, you know, it's, which are also historical fiction, but you know, it's, it's all, it's all about victory. In the Bible, when, when you see, you know, the, the Israelites in sin, you know, they, 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 they were, you know, they were not always the good guys, you know. So. Oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's, it's, you know, the little, little. Yeah, he might kill the hundred thousand Canaanites in Jericho or, or something like that. And it's just, you know, I, you know, I guess it depends which army you're in, which who's the good guys and who's not. That's that's sort of a, I guess, a building bridges about understanding perspectives. Um, all right. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. You sort of disappoint me on the cartoon thing, but that's okay. I'll give you. I'll give you a pass on that one. Um, yeah, all maybe right. give me some more. <laughs> I mean, you gave me some good. Some, I, 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 my, my mother's a big fan of the Planet of the Apes, but I don't. I, I, I think I have seen the Planet of the Apes cartoons. I've seen all the original movies. I never saw any of the newer okay. movies. But I, what was was Doctor Zayas right or was he wrong? He was right. He was no, he was right. <laughs> he was right. Oh yeah. What but... what what about hanging with doctors? Do you ever, you ever see uh, Dana Gould's Doctor Zayas? I don't think so, but I, but I saw the Simpsons where they had Doctor Zayas the musical, and that, that... yeah, that's brilliant. I, I always wanted to put that on in, in person. <laughs> like I I, I I remember telling my wife, you know, we were talking about doing some kind of a play in the summer camp, and I was like, we should just do. We should just do the Planet of the Apes musical from The Simpsons. I, I think Dana Gould actually wrote that, if I'm not mistaken. But he has a character that's where uh, he play he dresses up as Doctor Zayas, and he's like this uh, uh, '70s uh, talk show host. Mm-hmm. Just it's the funniest. It's the funniest skit. He had he had one with Space Ghost, and he had one with Weird Al. And he goes, he, he had Weird Al, you know, on the TV and he's interviewing Weird Al. And he tells him, he's like, this guy, he's telling about is this guy, what, he, he was there to save me when I was, you know, uh, all alone in a, in a laundromat in New Mexico with, with nothing but a bag of quarters. And, like, and he came to rescue me. <laughs> just, he goes on, it's just a brilliant, brilliant skit that he had another one where he's, He's Dr. Zayas playing Mark Twain. (laughs) Well, I I think I could enjoy some stuff like that. All right. I will ask you um, one more. And that is, is Land of the Lost the actual spiritual, if not direct, ancestor of the show Lost? (laughs) I think think it's the the spiritual ancestor of of, uh, what the other... One that just came out. Um, the, the one that was on NBC recently, where they that they, 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 they oh, fell through. Manifest or La Brea. La Brea. Yeah, because I, I know I know uh, NBC is constantly trying to do mystery box science fiction shows, and they they sort of never quite get there. 
Yeah, um, La Brea. My, my kids were, one of the inmates told me about La Brea and how much he enjoyed it. And I showed it to my kids and they were like, what is this garbage? It's just a rip off of Land of the Lost. Yeah, <laughs> it's I, not very good. It's not, it's not as fun as Land of the Lost, but I, I don't, I never, I never saw Lost. So I don't. I oh my know. goodness. Jesus. Um, and I, and I, I grew up with the, with the nineties remake of Land of the Lost. You know, the, the one that was on Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah. I never saw that. But, the, uh, the, the Kyoto brothers made. I never made it past episode three of La Brea. I was just done with it. Um, I, I think I only saw the first episode of La Brea. That was probably... We, we, at Monster Bash, we, we met all the cast of Land of the Lost. We go to one convention out in Pittsburgh every year. Coming up soon, I don't know when this is going to be released, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really a fun convention. We've met so many, so many great... Uh, uh, we've, we've lost Bird Eye Gordon and Rico Browning and uh, Larry Storch. So many, so many people I grew up watching who were already old when I when I was a kid. Sure. And uh, and I, to get to meet them and you know they're not here anymore. I, I have my own podcast and YouTube channel. And we talked about all of them. when he, when each of those passed away. We we dedicated some time talking about Larry Storch and Bird Eye Gordon and. And uh, Enrico Brown and we, we Enrico Browning we must have met I don't know almost ten times because he was he was at all the conventions he was at Monster Bash he was at Blob Fest which is in the original uh, movie theater where where they you know filmed the scene of the Blob where they run out that's in Phoenixville Pennsylvania and uh, and all these other conventions that that we've been to and it's it's, uh, it's, it's so much fun and and uh, Monster Bash again that's my jam of, of only stuff until about the 60s, some stuff from the 70s, especially Harry Housen is okay, but really anything else uh, after that, it, they they really don't have much of that, but it, it just, it's so much fun. And, and we're looking, we, my whole family, we can't wait for June so we can, you know, drive six hours out to Pittsburgh to, to go be with our monster friends. And, uh, and it's a nice family-friendly uh, you know, convention. It's really, really quite there. And and I'm not the only clergyman there. We there's a priest who does a church service there on Sunday morning there. Well, I'm telling you, a, all science fiction and all monsters and all of these things all came from some sort of uh, religious background. And 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 if you look back, it was probably started somewhere in the northern in this valley or between the Black and Caspian seas around that area. Anyway, I've Two other questions for you, semi-serious, semi-not. One, the Book of Enoch and the, the the War of the Angels is that is that true or is that fan fiction? It's a little bit of both. Okay. <laughs> it, it, the Book of Enoch is a fan fiction, but it's it it it's, uh, which in the same it's that same question about the Zohar, uh, or some might even call it like a channel type of channeled literature that it it's the which, which is really what fan fiction is. It's, it's channeled literature, but, you know, maybe from some higher music. But the, the idea, I, I think, I do think that there is something to all this, uh, ancient alien stuff being connected to it. Maybe it's exaggerated a little bit, but it's, uh, okay, listen, we're gonna, I think that, that that's going to be uh, our next show if there is one, whether it's on my show or yours. But, okay, so next question is going to be two-part, okay? And, and you, can, you don't have to choose. You can, you can pick one of each if you like. So from 
biblical or scriptural uh, of the Judeo-Christian, or just stick it to Judeo if you more if that's more your expertise. Who's your favorite angel and why? And who's your favorite your favorite monster, like a Leviathan or or whatever? My favorite angel is Metatron. Okay. He's not, he's, he's not mentioned in the in the Bible, but he's mentioned in the Talmud and in Kabbalah and um, and you know is Rabbi he, the big. Um, is he Enoch? It, yes, okay. Enoch is is well Enoch and Metatron. Yeah, are, uh, Enoch became part of Metatron, meaning Metatron ah. was there already. And, uh, Rabbi Barzil kind of says there's like. The race of Metatron, it's, it's almost like the Borg getting assimilated into the Borg. That's how he, that, that Enoch <laughs> got assimilated into Metatron. That is um, okay. That, that That is very science fiction-y. Come on, that, that's fantastic into the collector. So Enoch became part of Metatron, but Metatron is not synonymous with Enoch. But, okay. I, yeah. and, and Metatron is sort of like the, the chief of the Archangels, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And how about Monster. I mean, I, I have a special place in my heart for Oak, the king of Bashan. Okay. When you mentioned Leviathan and these others. There's, there's so many great monsters in, in the in the in the Bible, and then in the Talmud, and in the Kabbalah, and other even. There's even um, a, uh, a medieval text that claims that Benjamin, the son of Jacob, was a werewolf. Uh, 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 you know, and it's, so, uh, you know, so you should have led with that. Yeah, I, and then someone, then someone pointed me to, uh, a, a, you know, a Jewish response. Him, you know, someone wrote a letter to a rabbi, you know, asking a question, and the rabbi responds, and, and it says, uh, "My dear Doctor Frankenstein, right. uh, thank you for your question." Exactly. So, was Jesus a vampire, and is Lazarus a, a vampire as such? No. Okay, that's too no, dangerous. No. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I'm going with yes. Um, is uh, is Lilith real? Yes, um, but you know the the word Lilith appears one time in the Bible in the book of Isaiah. Seems to be a reference, most likely to an owl, but it could also be some kind of a demon. There is there is in the Talmud the idea, even it's mentioned if uh, if a um, a baby is born in the form of Lilith, and it's described as a uh, a humanoid being with with bat wings. Ah, now we go. The idea of the first wife of Adam. That I'm not as as sure of, but you know that that might be more of you know a legend, you know, to to, to teach a lesson as opposed to something meant to be understood historically or little baby but, vampires, or little baby Cthulhu's though, all com- coming yeah. from Lilith. I'm good with all of that. All right. Well, I think that we had very much a Dickensian show and that the first half was very serious and that the second half got a little bit less serious. I think they're both important, though. I think they're both interesting, <laughs> hopefully to the same audience. Um, but yeah, I think we only just scratched the surface. So you said you have your own podcast. And so uh, how, how can people follow you or listen to you or support you? So I have a YouTube channel. It says called Lens Hasidic Rabbi official, I think is how it says. Or you just search my name, you know, <laughs> Rabbi Kolakowski. Uh, I'll, I'll pop up. I'm all over, you know, I'm, uh, on Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube. Um, 
it's on Rumble also, a few of the others, but then I, the podcast, I usually will upload also to Facebook, but it's, it's all over the, the podcast. I had one podcast that we stopped doing about, um, about, uh, prison work and, and in general, uh, it was called to stir with love. Like, you know, the old movies they were called the prison stir. Um, but, and it's kind of a playoff of to stir with love. And, and it's with this other rabbi from, uh, from Elizabeth, New Jersey, um, we started that, and we had some pretty major guests on that, and then uh, we stopped doing that, uh, but we used to, and that always talk about movies, so we switched it to a movie podcast, that this rabbi and I, and it's called The Projectionist Has Samicha, Samicha is the word for rabbinical ordination, this is, you know, the rabbi uh, talking about old movies we we cut it off at 40 years and it has to be 40 years old or older and i usually tend to go to the the more schlocky things and he tends to find more serious things every now and then i'll find something serious i think our our latest episode i was because uh harry belafonte passed away i talked about uh god uh, uh what is it called the world the flesh of the devil um, with, which was a science fiction, you know, post-apocalyptic movie with Harry Belafonte, which I, I had never seen until just a week ago, two weeks ago. I, I, I finally watched it and I, I'd heard of this movie, you know, growing up reading Jeff Robbins books on science fiction films and then finally seeing it. I was, I was impressed by it, but I also felt like it was trying too hard. You know, like it, it's, a, it's a difference between, you know, a movie like them, which is such a good movie, but it's not trying to be a good movie, or 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 uh, you know, it, it, or or beginning of the end, which I I enjoyed more than them, but it's it's not trying at all, but it's it's still trying somewhat. I mean, Bert Engelcourt and always put in a good effort for what he was working with, but then uh, to get to something like this that's trying to make a statement, trying to be very serious, trying to be very grandiose, and it gets to be a a little bit uh pretentious but not so pretentious that's not enjoyable it's still and it's not and the, the one thing i like is it's not that long you know but it was uh it was done you know pretty well and, that, and then we talked about some other okay. other interesting well the name of the podcast is what again the projectionist has samicha <laughs> s-e-m-i-c-h-a okay yeah that means that the rabbinical ordination right favorite twilight zone Oh, I mean, this is going to be so uh, disappointing, but it, it has to be you know the 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 one with the gremlin, the with terror with what twenty thousand feet? How many? Yeah, with William Shatner. With with Shatner, I I, I know it's cliche, but it's, yeah, it's okay. Mine mine is to serve man. It's a cookbook. Um, that's also yeah. That's also. I mean, they're all good. It's it's not like it's not like one is any better than the other. But that that's also a good one. That's probably that's probably even better. Good. So I'm convincing you already. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on Garden of Doom. And folks, thank you for listening. And as always, we would ask for you to rate us, review us, and refer the show to others. And we'll hear from you next week, or you'll hear from us next week in the Garden of Doom.